the banter cast begin. Oh, we, oh, we started. We started. Our food just showed up. Thank you. It looks delicious. It does. Uh, Mikey got a cacio pepe. We got two pizzas, and what did you get? Uh, penne pasta, and also a side order of people watching us with food <laughs> in our plates <laughs> while we podcast. <laughs> Which is always good fun. Maybe we should ask them about the tour. No, that, no, that never goes well. You never get the answers you want. No. You yeah. get the answers you need, though. You do. <laughs> for, a, for a really true committed Capital J journalist, we would we'd man on the street then. Which means just, that's, that sounds worse than it is. It just means going up to members of the public and asking them questions. It's just having a chat. It's just having a chat. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. Uh, we, we had great response to the banter cast from the rest day, so... I'm not promising that a full banter cast every day. That's impossible. There's not enough banter to go around. However, be slightly more banter in the regular weekday We can episodes. turn it, we can dial up a, a, a one notch. Yeah. We'll increase it by one. Yeah. We're also adding some um, extra background noise. We've got some some booming beats. We've got some, some <laughs> friends, future friends nearby. And I, I think that it all bodes well. I did watch the old woman slightly choke on her food about 10 minutes ago <laughs> and then furiously sip a gin and tonic to make it go away, which is kind of... It'll do it. Is, that's It'll how help. I aspire to have my life. <laughs> <laughs> There's also Patank going on. There and is. And we've been discussing the various names of Patank. In, in the UK, we call it Bulls. Patank's yeah. French, right, you said? Patank is French and with a smaller ball. And then okay. Bocce is Italian with a bigger ball. And we're an Italian restaurant, but we're in France. I think he's Italian there because he said Prego. So the, the wait staff pretending? appears to be, they're speaking Italian to us, as well as French and English. A bit off topic, my dad has, <laughs> his main conspiracy theory is that in the UK, everyone who works in an Italian restaurant is just putting on an Italian accent. And uh, I mean, I hope he probably has listened to this, but uh, the weird thing is, is that half the time they're not, they're just Eastern European. <laughs> Saying Italian words. What's his? If that's his, if that's his sort of top conspiracy theory, what's like second and third? I I haven't asked. Could we play? Could we have a nightly kind of update? <laughs> Ted's going off. <laughs> All right, we're gonna get it. We're gonna get into what happened in today's stage in just a moment. But literally, our food just shut up. So I'm gonna hit pause on the recorder, and we're gonna come back. And in in your ears, it will be five seconds of segue music. For us, it'll be a half hour of eating dinner. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. We're once again being watched by our neighbors. <laughs> our friends. <laughs> our friends on the, in the other in the other tables. We have quite a few things to talk about today because, uh, well, it, was, it ended up being a bit of a transition stage, I would say. Uh, but Magnus Court got a stage win, and and for a guy who's who spent what the entire first week of the bike race in a breakaway, that's pretty damn impressive. Apparently, he just needed a rest day, and he's back at it. Yeah, he, uh, he needed. Um, he also timed it perfectly to come around Nick Schultz with that, that final sprint. It's a weird drag that one. They had in a Dauphiné a couple of years ago. It sort of goes on forever. There was there was the original breakaways. There was a group of two or three out front. They started playing cat and mouse. Then I think Magnus Court was in the group behind and then came back up, a few more attacks, but he, he timed it well. He waited, 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 which is often the case, and that's probably his experience talking. And it looked a lot closer than it actually turned out to be. No, you couldn't really tell if it was Nick Schultz or Magnus Court. But yeah, we had that front front on shot mm. for the finish. Which never helps really anyone. Tell. No. But why do they stick with it? I guess it does look better. Yeah. I mean, Build the drama. I, I was actually the, keep uh, guessing. That's what I was going to say, is that you actually, because you can't tell. 
Yeah. Right? That's actually kind of nice in a sprint. Best Are you sprints. advocating for every stage just being like the freeze frame? I, as much as the, most of the stage is can be sometimes dull in terms of you're waiting for the action. Today wasn't the case, but then I'd like the sprint to also be as sort of no I think suspense. it'd be cool. Do you guys know the camera that they do in the shops? Yeah, that's amazing. They should do that on all the stages. Just It could be shorter, right? Just like the last, I don't know, 100 meters. You get the shops sort of like follow cam that goes alongside. I mean, that, that that shot that that camera got, I think it might have been one of the first years that they were using that, that angle, actually. Uh, before they had guys on motos in the mm. same place, but it was sort of, it looked better the way that they did it this particular year. It was the year that Renshaw let out Cav in probably one of the best leadouts in the history of cycling uh, for the victory on the Champs Elysees, and I, uh, that's one of the coolest. Hmm. It's one of the coolest cycling pieces of videography. I don't know what the right term is. Uh, shots. I think I've ever seen, and I wish that they would use that more in finish lines. There was also the was it Wiggins leading out Cav in the yellow jersey. Cav as world champion being led out by the yellow jersey on the Champs Elysees. That, that's one of like my early one. cycling memories. I think also a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, the that that would have been a couple of years after the one I'm talking about. The which is which is HTC days. HTC Cav uh -huh. and and Renshaw, twenty. Well, Wiggins was twenty twelve, wasn't it? Two thousand nine. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's two thousand nine. Sorry, uh, our resident fact checker, <laughs> Mike Better, has dropped in with that little little tidbit. Anyway, fantastic stage today. Won by Magnus Court. Uh, out of a breakaway. We always sort of knew that a breakaway was going to go today, although for the first 80 or whatever kilometers, it didn't actually look like it. The break didn't go till 100K to go. It looked really hard. In fact, I think I turned to you at some point and said that bike racing is not what it was five years ago. Like Five years ago, at this stage, Break would have gone 30k in, would have had 12, 15 riders, and it would have been given a huge gap, and you know would have just been gone because UAE didn't really have any real reason to try to maintain the yellow jersey, and no one else was going to do anything today because Yumbo Visma has all the interest, or and Ineos too, have all the interest in in making sure that UAE is using all of their matches as much as they possibly can. This year, though, quite different. Uh, it just takes, it seems to take a lot longer for breaks to establish, not even this year, it's the last couple of years, basically post-COVID, take a lot longer for breaks to establish, and UAE did a fair amount of pulling today uh, because Pogacar ended up hanging on to the yellow jersey by, was it 11 seconds over Leonard Kamna? Again, I feel like five years ago, that jersey is on Kamna's shoulders. They just, they just let it go, but these days, less so, and there, there's a couple of reasons for that, I think. I feel tactically they probably should have let it go. I mean, they're they're not having a great time UAE today. Yeah. So I was chatting with um, Ian Boswell just just showed up. Some of you might recognize that name. He raced for Sky, raced for Katusha. Uh, now he actually works over at Wahoo these days. But he just showed up to do I think the middle week here with the cycling podcast. I'm sure a lot of our listeners listen to that one as well. We're good friends with all those guys. Um, he just showed up, and I was chatting with me, with Ian today, and and both of us kind of came to the conclusion that really one of the reasons that uh, that they would be that that UAE would be pulling is because they are still kind of in this mode where they're not really sure if this race is just going to stop at some point. And you'd think at this point, like this is a big concern when the Tour de France first came back post COVID. You'd think at this point we would be kind of over that, but it is genuinely still kind of a concern and, and basically that the the thought is 
Pogacar wants to get and keep as much time as he possibly can. I mean, we saw him make a little move at the top again today, right? Get and keep as much time as he possibly can because the future of this race is extremely unpredictable. And we'll get into some of the COVID stuff in a little bit here. But even without sort of like, oh, the race is over tomorrow, which is something we thought would happen in, in that first post-COVID post post tour, I think that's unlikely. But Pogacar could find himself with two teammates in a week's time, right? That is entirely possible. He's already lost two. We know the way that COVID works. We know how transmissive these variants are. He could find himself with two teammates, and he needs to have as much of a buffer as he possibly can going into basically any day. If I'm Pogacar, I don't even want Leonard Kamna in the yellow jersey if I'm solo <laughs> or with one or two teammates going into the Pyrenees. Number one, Bora have a strong team, and they're buoyed by that Giro victory. But also, there's the guarantee, as you pointed out before we started, <laughs> so Kaylee's just really enjoying his Aperol Spritz. We're on the Aperol Spritz night. It's that stage of the tour. It's got a squeaky straw. A squeaky one. Um, what was I saying? Um, yes, the one guarantee is that UAE Team Emirates will have Rafael Micah, because he tested positive but could remain in the race because his viral load was low enough that he's not infectious, I think. But regardless... His, his uh, or control threshold That's was it. high enough. High enough. Interestingly enough. Know. Because it's actually, I think it's like a, it's a function of time. Uh, and I so see. essentially, like, it's how much vi virus... Because isn't it just like a little centrifuge, I think? So it's basically like how mm. much virus escapes the centrifuge in a certain amount of time. Uh, and then they can kind of extrapolate from that how much virus knowledge. is in the sample. I guess. But yes, but despite Again, that. not a doctor. Don't even play one on TV. Don't really know what I'm talking about. But that this is what we believe is is the case. Regardless, not uh, contagious enough, basically, to get thrown out of the race. But contagious enough. Well, as thought by the rest of the peloton, that neither Ineos nor Jumbo Visma wanted to ride behind him today. And Garrett <laughs> Thomas, after the actually. stage, was like, "I found myself behind Michael one point. I, I quickly pulled out, as did my teammate, and then the Jumbo boys did the same." <laughs> So maybe that's a new tactic as well, is that just... He was even riding behind Pogi. Yes. For a while, Pogaccio. For, for quite a while. For most of the stage, actually, basically until they were kind of out of domestiques and then he finally was following following. Maybe Rafa Michael wins the tour because no one wants to follow and he just <laughs> goes solo. And old... no, but, you, but you're right in that, in that Pogaccio is at least guaranteed, barring another crash or, or other illness, that Micah will be in Paris because... He's essentially cleared the hurdle, yeah. right? Like he's gotten COVID, but got it, got it done with fast enough or something to yeah. stay in the race. Maybe they will. It'll be them two up out to us together doing rock paper scissors for who <laughs> who gets the stage win and or yellow jersey. A la Toro Slovenia, exactly. not that long ago. Yeah, I've said this a million times in this podcast, but we don't really want to. We, don't want to, we just don't want to dwell on COVID that much. It's just been really hard to avoid over the last couple of days. Half the press room has it. Mm. I wouldn't say we're terrified, but we're all pretty sure that we've come in contact with it a lot over the last two weeks, and we're just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. But let's move on from COVID. We have replaced Ronin and discussions of turf with an Australian. And discussions of cassowaries. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about cassowaries, but I do spiders. Spiders, yes, that was the talk of the the meal last night. Yep. Um, really got some British people nervous. 
I mean, about our spider situation. Are wary? Or is this, is this a rest day two? Is this rest day two chat? The most, um, the most feedback I got on the previous... Uh, I was last on the tour in 2019, and a defining moment of that tour's podcasting for me was when... Uh, we had listeners writing in to say that you shouldn't shoot wombats in the arse. So, based on something I'd said, and I, I, I do not condone shooting wombats in the arse. Um, I, I didn't then, and I don't now, just to be clear. So, um, I'm not sure I believe it. Anyway, cassowaries are not like a wombat. They're, a, a, they're kind of like a, an emu with a colourful head and a oh, bad okay. attitude. I think, I've, I think I've seen a video of them on YouTube they're tropical. or something. <laughs> It's like like a, man. I saw a YouTube video of them. <laughs> they're they're a, they're a tropical sort of like flightless bird that just sort of runs around through the the jungle and um, makes a lot of noise. There, I've I've heard talk yeah. on a BBC documentary segment that my uh, I, my eldest daughter is fascinated fascinated by cassowaries, and uh, one time asked Google um, to play a documentary about cassowaries. And that documentary, rightly or wrongly, said that they are the closest thing to dinosaurs. I don't know if I believe that. I, th I thought that was birds. I thought birds are like actually just dinosaurs. The thing about cassowaries, Kaylee, is that they're a bird. Oh. <laughs> if I, if I, so I, I just completely zoned out because I was trying, I was attempting to uh, get myself another. Another Aperol spritz. Well, both of us in Aperol spritz. You can you can keep trying that because uh, I thought it was like a small mammal or something like that. Oh, good grief. Okay. Anyway, I, I, I was just going to suggest that the closest thing to a dinosaur was Patrick Lefevre, but I am not. I'm not someone looking for retweets on Twitter, so I, I didn't say that. So from someone from tweet that and tag Johnny. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> not you, Mike, either. <laughs> All of that uh, that build up was my segue. Effortless, I think we'll all agree, into uh, our Australia update. I'm, yeah. I'm an Australian and I've got an update on the Australians in the race. Ooh. Two of them. You've mentioned Nick Schultz, almost won a race, yeah. didn't. Came very close. close. The other one that I wanted to talk about today is Caleb Ewan, mm -hmm. uh, who Looks I... sad. It was, it was a little sad. I No, no, no. no, no. I, I didn't find it sad. I mean, I, I guess I should find it sad. He just looked sad. I'm just saying like his face mm. was sad. He looked tired. I would say. Yeah. I, I was standing at a roundabout um, watching the procession of the race and I saw uh, four Lotto Sudals ride past, no Caleb Ewan. And then a couple of minutes later, Caleb by himself, um, not looking in a, a great way, I slid into the DMs of the Lotto Sudal uh, press officer and said, were you worried that he was going to miss the time cut? And uh, he alleged that Caleb wanted to choose his own rhythm on the climb, so he sent the boys ahead. But they were confident about making the time cut at the time. Um, but I, regardless of whether that is the case, it doesn't bode well for when there are much bigger mountains than a climb up to an airport. I think he said he was dip. scared today. Yeah, he said when he said he hopes that maybe today was just a bad day. Yeah. I think he's maybe. Well, I mean, you've got to be hopeful that you're going to make it up the Col de Granon tomorrow. Is Col de Granon tomorrow? So that comes Olivier tomorrow. tomorrow. Is it? Hold on, we got the book. I know, what is day it? Wait, is wait, today? I got it, Mike. Oh. What day is today? Today is just Yeah, Col de Granon tomorrow. You're Chevalier. right. Um, Either way, there's a bit of pain ahead. Yes, I like how your first day at the race... See, I hadn't... We go to the Glibier first. We're both right. Oh, we are? Nice. Yes. 
tomorrow, 151 kilometers. We'll get into the CM. 151K. Uh, they go up the Telegraph side. So that means they essentially they go up the Telegraph and they descend for like three minutes and then they go up the Gilier. But they call them two different climbs, which is weird. And then the Grenon is the. Grenon Sarah Chevalier is the final. Climb. Tomorrow is also a big money earner for the the enterprising climber that gets over the Galibier first. It is the highest point of this year's race, uh, equaled only by the highest point of this year's race tomorrow. The, sorry, the day after tomorrow. Um, but because tomorrow's Galibier is the first Galibier, there's 5,000 euros on offer for one lucky <laughs> cyclist. So sad. we have a sad Caleb Ewan who's a little concerned about making it. He felt confident, according to Lotto Sudal, that he would make it. I'm a I'm a Caleb Ewan defender. I don't I'm, know what it is. I'm not a Caleb Ewan attacker. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't suggesting that. What I do like in though is that you've been on the race first day and you are peppering the press officers with. Most people like this. Maybe where I've been going wrong is that I I request like interviews and you've just been going straight to them with the questions, <laughs> which actually is a lot more efficient. And uh, you're much more likely to get an answer. So the thing is, you're keeping them on their toes after the first rest day. It's like the riders back on their bike, bang, maybe how their legs feel, and you're right into the, the face you, of the press officers. What you need to do is just like cut out a lot of the faffing, get rid of the yeah. the sort of intermediary step of getting to know somebody, getting friendly yeah. with them, building rapport. <laughs> just, just fire questions. Just ask them difficult questions, yeah. see what they come back with, mm. and maybe you'll get a story. Out fair, of it, if, maybe it's a, not. if it's a Belgian press officer, they probably prefer that. They probably prefer the directness. I would say that the uh, Belgian pre press officers have been the most responsive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm speaking to them in a language they understand. Yeah. <laughs> what about Schultz? Second. Close. Tell me about him. You're Australian. What do you know about him? You guys all know each other? Is, is this the thing where you I, like, meet I someone abroad? Yeah. <laughs> you meet someone abroad and you're like, oh, I know someone from Australia. Have you met them? And it's like what 20 million people. What did you just say? <laughs> I don't know what you said. <laughs> Second place today is oh, one Schultz. of your countrymen. Is uh, from Queensland. Yeah. Is a bike exchange boy. And you love to see it. <laughs> well done. Uh, we have a very important update today. Uh, it's This is actually, this is a great episode to have the day after the, the rest day banter cast episode because it also, it was a, just a sort of like random transition stage. <laughs> It allows, us, actually, it allows us back into the mix. Like not, yeah. There's not a ton of bike racing to talk about today. However, there was a, a, a key, crucial update on Garrett Thomas's glasses. Also in Ronan's absence, I'm yeah. taking over this particular nerd nugget because Garrett Thomas was not wearing his preferred sunglasses. What happened? Uh, Oakley, <laughs> Oakley pays money and said, we want you wearing the Tour de France collection, which is like the normal Oakleys, but has a splash of yellow on them and a Tour de France logo, and they pay ASO a lot of money for the privilege of getting that logo on the sunglasses. And today, Oakley pulled rank and said, Garant, we do not want you wearing these racing jackets. You need to wear jawbreakers, which he did. I feel like we, most of our audience will probably be aware of what's, what's happening here, but in case, in case we've got some folks who are not clued up on Garant Thomas's eyewear of choice yeah. through no fault of their own through no fault of your own because and, uh, frankly it's not something we should be paying attention to however this particular group of of 
capital J journalist, has been paying attention to it for quite some time. Uh, can so I, please explain. Okay, so, so Garen Thomas in 2009 was writing for Barlow World and they were sponsored by some sunglass sponsor that had some very... Like, I was, I was doing a deep dive on the Garrett Thomas sunglass backstory today, and in 2009, when he was a Barlow World boy, he had uh, some very angular things that didn't, to my personal tastes, look good. But then in 2010, he moved to Team Sky, and, in, and from that point onwards, 2010 to that present, long. yes, <laughs> that's 13 seasons, <laughs> wearing white Oakley racing jackets, which are... Um, the preferred sunglass of Lance Armstrong, uh, who is a topic that will get people really riled up, I imagine. So, As Johnny found out this week. As Johnny found out. But those those are the basic sort of shape that we're looking at there. Hincappy had them. That kind of thing. There's there's assorted holes around the, the frame. They're, yeah, I mean, they were just... They're, they're a very... They're a very 2008 to 2010 they look great at the time they're very on you know on on very stylish at the time sort of like a full frame with holes with aerodynamic cues with all sorts of stuff and and they just they don't really look like the glasses of today however however i don't know if you guys have noticed glasses are coming around once again they're getting smaller again after getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so maybe he just needs to wait like another two or three seasons and Coming he'll back be in. spot on again. Oh, here we go. Messi. Either way. So he he uh, was yeah. not wearing them today and we noticed. We noticed these things. And um, again, peppering press officers with pointy questions. Yeah. And, and here we are. We have inside sources, though, that make it pretty safe money bet that he will be back in those sunglasses one day. His original ones. Possibly tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe as soon as tomorrow. Which is not at all a slam on the Oakley Jawbreaker, an iconic sunglass tile. Exactly. <laughs> I, I like it in how you've started referring to riders for certain teams as with the suffix of boy. And as soon as I was thinking, which one, I was thinking as you were talking, which one would be the best one? And a Bora boy, I think, is the... I, uh, I think it has, connota it has connotations, though, if, like, said in a d in different contexts, you know. I... I I, I think that my, my general catch-all term for members of the professional peloton is bicycle boys. Yes. So uh, it's... Um, is this it's with an I? I-S. B-O-I-S. Uh, yeah. The boy. The S okay. is silent. <laughs> we are in France. Um, but how does that work with the um, men in glass? Because surely they can't be men and boys at the same time. So so the men in glass is an interesting case. We, uh, we saw men in glass today we, we drove past them on the way up to our yeah. hotel men in glass is the second worst performing team of this year's race slightly ahead of astana kazakhstan and <laughs> who have uh, have so far got 600 euros they've, money. they've kind of they've kind of ridden like kazakhs as well haven't they <laughs> Joe Dombrowski gave it a shot yesterday. Yeah, I was going to say, we, nice we must protect Joe Dom yeah. Dombrowski at all costs. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, the, the men in glass. Uh, <laughs> Back to the sanctity of the men in glass. <laughs> the, only, the only men in the bunch, the only non-boys in I the like bunch, um, are a French team. Glass is a colour. That colour is the colour of the sea in Brittany. <laughs> Of course. Uh, that, that is a direct quote the from... Sea the sea in Brittany. The sea in Brittany. Mm. Um... And, and then the press officer, when I asked that question, 
slid a little winky face emoji after that. <laughs> the sea in Brittany, wink. The uh, French press officers like to throw the winky face about with barely any qualms, and I don't know whether to enjoy it or be scared. With abandon. With abandon, that's abandoned. what I'm looking for. <laughs> but yeah, well, maybe that maybe that's a piece you could work on, Ian. I think the I just need officers, to. What's going on? I just need to introduce like random emojis for the chaos of it. <laughs> just <laughs> <You're> like. Just, <laughs> Hello, quick step press officer. Tell us about safety joggers. Devil emoji. <laughs> what did you describe them as earlier? You took the picture and you tweeted out. Uh, <laughs> they're they're um, Deco- not Deconic, sorry. Quick step. Alpha vinyl. Quick, uh, quick step alpha vinyl's uh, sensible shoe sponsor. Have <laughs> <laughs> you seen the photos of them on the back of the they're bus? They're fantastic. They look. God awful. We'll we'll put a picture up. Yeah, I, I have put a picture up on my Twitter. There you go. We uh, should we need to get a picture of you in front of them. Spelt none of the ways you think it will be. <laughs> a super easy follow. I'm still laughing at a stun, a Quasic stun. How has that not been? Have I not realised that? Oh, oh, we need to help Joe Dombrowski. <laughs> he needs help. Joe's doing fine. Actually, need, I do need to catch up with Joe. I of course, go, he's doing to... fine. He's on track to make twenty euros yeah. in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> he was for, actually on the cobble stage. He was actually fine. So was at least really? up until the cobble, well, before the cobble stage, he was fine. Okay. Since then, we don't know. Maybe that's negligent of us. Could be. Yeah. We'll get him. You know what? Should we get him in the in the morning for the podcast? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. We like Joe. Yeah, he's a, Joe, he's a nice Joe guy. Joe had his own. He had a beer for a while. He had his own beer. Did he? Was it, like was it called Joe Dombrowski? I, uh, if it's that would not, be good. If it's not, I'm going to go... When we go back to the hotel, I'm patterning that. I cannot remember away. what it was called, but Hang I can on, Google it. He, I wrote this story. Did he brew Bellanus. the beer? Huh? Did he brew the beer? No. He just put his name on it. Uh, there is... Uh, don't, I, scoop, don't scoop yourself, But he's like, he's like into beer. He's like a beer guy. Do you know who yeah. else is into beer? Well, don't scoop yourself. Okay. You can wait for, the, wait nice. for that scoop on cycling tips. <laughs> <laughs> if that particular press officer... For a French team, gets back to me. Maybe I just oh, shoot yeah, him a he, winky face. Yeah, he's a good one. He's a good one. He's a good one. This is very inside cycling, this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Welcome to press, uh, pressofficertips.com. <laughs> Yesterday we were talking about turf, and now we've got even less sort of relevance to the bike race by talking about the press officers. Should we explain what press officers do? A yeah. thankless I'm job. Just thinking that, I'm just thinking that, like, you know, there's, there's, there's some context here that... Yeah. Um, our listeners might not have. How does I guess, this work? I guess, I guess the one link to the real world is like White House press officers and stuff like that, except they have they don't like speak for the riders. They just tell you, no, you can't speak to that rider because yeah. they're in fact, too famous it, and they have too much to do. In fact, quoting press officers is kind of frowned upon. Like, it's not really done. Yeah, we need to go in trouble for that. Yeah. Recently. Um, but they, they, you know, they, they do set you up. If you, as long as you pick the right sort of level of fame of a rider, then they're like, yeah, no problem. We would love to give you X, Y, Z to talk to about whatever weird thing. Like when we spoke to Hugo Hofstetter about his dog, and um, I was asking the questions on your behalf, Ian, Hugo Hofstetter's face lit up that he wasn't being asked about sprinting or bike racing. He just could talk about, is, it, is his dog called Mitru? Petrus. Petrus. Petrus, the... Uh, <laughs> The Rottweiler cross with the piercing blue eyes. <laughs> yes. What's what was Michu? Something was well, named I asked, Michu recently. I asked his partner that it was um, what the dog's name was, and she her, well, <laughs> she, she didn't know. Petrus. She said Michu. 
<laughs> yeah, but um, yeah. So, for instance, that is an example of you make you make requests to press officers to talk to various members of staff. They say yes or no. That's okay. Sometimes you have a little bit of a chat with them when you're both waiting at bike races. A lot of them speak English, so it's easier for us they guys to all build. Speak English. Yeah. yeah, or from England or America, so yep. it's easy for us to get along with them. Probably the people you speak we speak to most on the team. That's yeah. the press offices. Yeah, it's it's a tricky job because it's basically they're they're kind of like the buffer between us and the riders, and the riders are obviously tired and cranky and don't want to talk and to people. And fed up with our bullshit. Fed up with our bullshit, and we have jobs to do, and so their their job is to be in the middle of that, and mm. it's it's not an easy place to be. And the the really good ones are essentially like they kind of you know they play us and they play the riders. The really good ones, I would say. Like they 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 kind of trick the riders into getting what they need, and they kind of trick us into thinking that we've got what we need. And 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 the best stories remain unwritten. Yes. To quote Natasha Bedingfield slightly. <laughs> um, well, they also hug. Sorry, quickly. They also hug Thibaut Pinot, and then a few days later have to go to um, French police station with Alberto Bettiol to explain what happened with the protest. Yeah, on Matthew stage. Bowden. Yeah, uh, the press officer over at EF Easy Post. Yeah, he was the one that hugged hugged Pino the other day. In fact, I I, I got a, a chat with him the morning after, and it, I decided not to run it because I don't know. Because I, again, there's this weird thing about like sort of quoting press officers. It's yeah. just it's just it's just not and they really want done. To low, they want to stay below the waterline, don't yeah, they? Yeah, like their their whole job is to elevate the riders while also kind of protecting yeah. them. So anyway, I didn't run it, but yes. Matt Bowden did that, and then and then today confirmed to us with a photo, a selfie, in fact, of him and, and Alberto Betiol in a police station here in Mejev, uh, giving some sort of statement about about protests and whatever else. In fact, that's a pretty good segue. We should talk about the protests today. It was it was genuinely the biggest story of the day, I think. Definitely, and. When you're in the press room and you're kind of watching TV, if you don't speak amazing French, you can't really list, um, rely on the commentary to keep you informed what's on, going on in the bike race. So I don't know about you guys, but I the first thing I saw was just Alberto Betio. Alberto Betio stopped by the sort of side of the road talking to a car, and we're like, "What's going on here?" Is he? At first, he was spraying a bottle on his head, so I thought, "Is it like are they stopped the race because of heat or something like that?" But it turned out that there had been a a protest. An environmental protest, but I think also the group stands for more than that. It's more just about a catch-all. The website that they yeah. linked to, that they had on the, the few of the protests had on their T-shirt to raise awareness, was very confusing. And often with these protest websites, well, you know, they need some fully support professionals. Yeah, they need yeah. to just say like, "This is what we are doing," <laughs> instead of like stories about watching the Tour de France with their grandfather, which, while moving, makes it a lot harder to get to the bottom of it. They need yeah. a press officer. They need a press officer. <laughs> They actually, yeah. They there's really, your they there's really your experience feature for the, for the for the third week of the race. In <laughs> I embedded with the, uh... but yes. Yeah, so there was um, after the race, we spoke to Fred Wright, who was in the breakaway about 20 seconds behind Alberto Betti. He said the first that the remnants of the breakaway, the chase group saw was there was a guy with a flare, red flare, which we've seen all the pictures now, who sort of stepped into the road, and they were like, "This is a bit weird. Like, why is it like it was sort of an empty stretch of road? Why is he doing this?" And then they soon came across a line of people sitting chained to each other in the middle of the road. Alberto Betiol just scooched around them. You know, that's the bike racing mentality. is just like, whatever is there, just go. Yeah. 
I mean, they're never going to stop, right? They're not going. They're going to stop. They're not going to stop and find out what's happening. Yeah. Bike racer will not do that. They'll just go. Yeah. Um, and the race came to a halt for about 15 minutes. Then they allowed Betiol to maintain the gap while the police and members of ASO just dragged the protesters off the road. The pictures are quite, quite something. Um, it wasn't, it could have probably been uglier, I would say, the whole scene. Like, we didn't... Uh, we, we didn't get any, like, Bernardino punching people in the face no, kind of stuff. We didn't. Yeah. No pepper spray. No. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things where it's obviously, it's a big thing, and everyone sort of knows that, but everyone still kind of carries on with their lives. And when you, when you talk to the bike races afterwards, you do ask them what their, their opinion of it is, but they're probably as deeply flawed as us in terms of we are driving around France in this I flew you know we flew to Denmark and back yeah. to cover this bike race so they obviously like Fred Wright said you know it is obviously it's a really important thing but whether it's right to put yourself in harm's way and put the riders in harm's way you know it's a tricky one it's a constant debate but I think it, it seemed like most of the riders were at least sort of supportive of the cause and probably just not really informed enough of like what had actually happened or, or what what the yeah. Well, what do you say? Just like, not informed you, enough, basically. Yeah. Like who? You know, but you can't expect you them the to be. They're in, the, they're in the middle of the Tour de France. You want the Tour de France to happen. You want the, to help the climate. I mean, maybe maybe we'll look back in twenty years and say this is like this is an utterly selfish viewpoint. But yeah. I don't know. It's a it's an interesting one. But then it's got us talking. And, and we, we wouldn't mentioned it otherwise. Yeah, in that's this the whole podcast. point. Like I, you know, from a CT perspective, we have. Like we've tried to cut down on on race travel, but we're all here, right? Yeah. Because we still think that covering the Tour de France is essentially very important for our business, and a lot of businesses have, have made the same decision kind of decisions. And it, and it, I, I I sent something out on Twitter today, just kind of offhand, and, and basically said like sometimes you need uh, a twenty two a twenty two year old I can't remember exactly what I wrote a twenty two year old with some serious convictions yeah, <laughs> to kind of it's shake a, you it's up. It's a brave thing to do basically. as well because yeah, you a, know the TV cameras are going to everyone. And they're going to jail. Yep. They're they're going yeah, to on, jail. On, they documented, the, the protest group documented, they started in April, I think, their activities. Yeah. And since then, over 70 of them have been arrested. They were also, one of them was the protest who went on the court at Roland Garros, the French yeah. Open tennis tournament. Yeah. Um, so they're getting about. Like, like kind of the nature of protest is that if it is easily ignored, it is ineffective. Yeah. And so I think that everybody who, who cares about the future of the planet Earth, if, if we need to be occasionally reminded of that, of the fact that we should care about this in ways like this, let's, let's be clear, like, like nobody got hurt, none of the riders got hurt. Yeah. The way that they did it and the place that, that they did it was basically kind of like the safest way they could have done it, I think. It wasn't a descent, no. That would no, be like, like, you know, you know, stick a bunch of flares off on the descent and, and, and really cause havoc. Like, they, The one thing was the that. flare did obscure the riders from seeing the people on the floor, which probably, yeah. if you're going to redo the protest, maybe you don't do that. Maybe maybe you, maybe you stick the flare afterward or you pay attention to the wind direction a little bit yeah. more. But yeah, that's what I came out of it with. It's like, every time these things happen... This is a this is a, a topic and a subject that is easy to sort of push to the back of your mind and and ignore and uh, that's to all of our detriment and danger and and so mm. I, I am personally this is just a, this is this is not like an official cycling disposition or anything this is me personally I'm like okay with stuff like this occasionally happening if it was every damn stage i think it would get a bit old uh yeah. and at some point it'd like, be less impactful as well it'd be, and that's the other thing is it would be less impactful if it 
but it, you know, uh, uh, if it happens occasionally and it reminds and it kind of shakes us a bit and reminds us to be paying attention to these kind of things and makes me rethink flying across the world for something, mm. then that maybe is, is effective. If the French farmers can do it for the size they're allowed to catch their, cut their hedgerows or something like that, then we should be allowed to do it for the climate emergency. Yes, I agree. Anyway, uh, if you disagree with us, feel free to just keep that to yourself. Uh, <laughs> moving on, I need to take a brief, a brief moment to thank uh, the sponsor of today's episode, I want to tell you about Hammerhead's exclusive climber with predictive path technology. Those are three capitalized words, predictive path technology. The feature lets you visualize and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time with or without a route loaded. So you can confidently see what lies ahead, whether it's a steep incline or a windy descent or simply someplace new and wonderful waiting to be explored. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom color kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use the promo code CYCLINGTIPS at checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use promo code CYCLINGTIPS as a free custom color kit and premium water bottle with the purchase of a Karoo 2 over at hammerhead.io. And the promo code is CYCLINGTIPS. Pretty easy to remember. And as a total aside, I know that Ronan just filed a story all about Mm. head unit screens. He literally, he was running around like a crazy person. He was running around like a crazy person at multiple starts just kind of creepily taking Mm. pictures of riders like Garmin screens, Wahoo screens, Hammerhead screens and he's about to put those on the internet and one of the sort of uh, recurring themes of this was that a lot of riders are riding with maps up all the time and this is essentially what the Hammerhead is offering is, is the Hammerhead one is actually quite a bit more kind of advanced it gives you uh, sort of like real-time profiles on climbs that you're on, whether you have a route loaded or not, which is which is pretty neat. But regardless, whatever whatever sort of sponsor each of these riders has, they, they're, they're all running maps essentially so that we think, so they can spot like really tight corners and, you know, nasty hairpins on descents or, oh, we're going to be going straight for the next 15K or whatever. Sort of information that would maybe normally come from, uh, a team car, but this this way they can get it sort of in real time on their head unit. We think, which personally, like I run a map when I'm descending new rows all the time because I can base I, you know, I can look at the little map in front of me and know whether it's going to be a 180 degree switchback or a like 65 degree kind of sweeper, and I can stay off the brakes a bit longer. And I, I would imagine that that is exactly what what the pros are doing. So keep an eye out for that story from Ronan, and go check out the Hammerhead. One thing on that story quickly, um, Ronan got in touch with UAE's press officer to get Tade Pagacha's head unit, and the press officer fired back, show us exactly what sort of image you want, and I'll, and I'll sort it for you. So I had to model exactly how they wanted, I had to, I, I literally had been awake for 30 seconds, and Ronan's like, I just need you to do this really quickly for me before like you wake up. So I'd send a picture of me holding my iPhone up next to my head in the exact way it wanted, which in, on a self-involved point means that Tade Pagacha has at least seen my face once, which 
Was your head still on the pillow? Or are we going to get a picture of Tadej Pogacar holding up his Garmin or, or Wahoo or whatever he's they got use? A, he's got an SRM. Yeah. An SRM. Yes. Tadej Pogacar with an SRM in bed. Like, yeah, puffy. Looking terrible. Um... But yeah, and Ronan said I saw on the on the website that Ronan was writing that piece as soon as he we dropped him off this morning at the train station, and I just saw Ronan McLaughlin head units, and I was just like, that is that is quite a way to sort of decamp from the Tour de France. If that's uh, if that's not the title when it goes up, I'll be very disappointed. Yeah. If, if there isn't an article on the website that is just head units. just titled head units, maybe full stop, maybe a full stop, head units or exclamation mark, head units, head units, winky face, yes. Can we talk about the Maya Sable yes. for a second? Please do. So Please before talk we get today's it. results, we had Mark, a member of the Velo Club, get in touch with a very interesting picture of his Maya Sable tattoo, which I think is on his leg. I think it's on his thigh. I love this. Is that a thigh? That's a thigh. That's yeah, definitely yeah. a thigh. thigh. It's, a, it's a left thigh, if I know my thighs. <laughs> and it's and I the, think I do. It's, it's, a, uh, <laughs> it's, on, it's on the left side, just... Just slightly next, above... Ne- next to the right. Sorry? It's the, it's the left side next to the right side. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just slightly above where your cycling like tan, tan line. line would be, like your classic Nick tan it's line. A, slightly above that. It's a jersey with um, a l- good shading on the tattoo, I will say. It's got a little cycling tips logo on the chest and then a big... What are they called again? The time? <laughs> Hourglass. Hourglass, thank you. <laughs> I've run out of words. Um, so that's amazing. And I did not know before I started this tour the deepness of the the law oh, of yeah. the Maya Sable. Do you remember who it was yesterday? I've completely forgotten. I was trying to scroll through. I think he was Belgian. Oh. Anyway. I, well, yeah. he's not it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, and I think this may be for the first time this tour, the current wearer of the Maya Sable was also the stage winner. Ooh. Rising 49 places to 90th and sitting at one hour, one minute and 51 seconds. Interesting. It's Magnus Court. So he's actually, he's returned back to the Maya Sabla. Yeah. Yeah. He's so maybe what we thought we knew about it was wrong. <laughs> well, no, we did say that you could get into well, it in a breakaway. Yeah, it's but possible. It's possible. Yeah. Big, big, long breakaway. Pull back some time. Yeah. You can, we, you can as, see riders. As we walked to this back. restaurant, we saw him in the van going to the hotel. So, yeah. And he was on the phone. So maybe he was calling his family to be like, guys, I've, I'm in the Maya Sabla. <laughs> We'll confirm that tomorrow. I'm, I'm sure that's what it was. Well, Johannes was in the car as well yeah. as our friend Daniel from Manual for Speed. So I'll just I'll text Daniel and find out exactly what he was talking about on the phone. It's probably taking think, pictures of him. Yeah. I think he was quotes. probably giving a very straight down the line interview to Danish media. <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah so Potentially. Yeah, <laughs> was that Danish? It was, uh, I, I speak Norwegian somewhat. And Danish is like Norwegian, but you swallow the sounds. Oh, interesting. Didn't know that. So uh, I don't actually understand people when they speak Danish, although I do understand Norwegians when they speak Norwegian. Is it sort of like if a, a Norwegian person was like uh, like submerged in a bathtub? Is it similar to that? <laughs> Norwegians say it's like if uh, if somebody was gargling a potato. <laughs> That's not... That's How do you <laughs> mash potato, you'd assume? I don't really want to think of that as a mental image, to be honest. It's... It's too late in the You just got already. something stuck in your throat. Okay. So are you going to go, can you go interview some Norwegians in Norwegian? 
I've tried before. I, I asked uh, the Stavanger Stallion. Your man. My man. Wait, wait, is it Stavanger? Because I've been saying Stavanger. No, that's absolutely wrong. I've been saying Stavanger. Yes. So, yes. Alexander Stavanger Stallion. That's way better than Stavanger. Stavanger? Alexander Kristoff lives just over the hill from my, uh, my wife's parents. Okay. Uh, so, I. You're, went often, <laughs> you're often right outside. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going over to um, Stavanger slightly after the tour, oh. and I intend to non-creepily <laughs> ride past the Christoph family residence, which is uh, I know well, where well, it now, is now because I've, I've I've carefully studied the Christoph family folklore. And you know exactly where the magic happens. I know where the magic happens. Hopefully, someone will inform them. They'll just be ready now, just waiting at the window for you to ride past. But and I the think Australian man is going to ride past the house in about three weeks' time. Here is the thing about the Christophs. I, I think that they do not, um, they do not care about letting people. Uh, maybe it's a Norwegian media thing. I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on TV Tour uh, or other Norwegian media outlets. But they seem to very, very e- eagerly welcome media into their family home. Oh, really? Which is a beautiful home, I will say that. Um, it has it has the room where the magic happens. It's got. <laughs> we need to. <laughs> I did not think we'd end this podcast with talking about the creation of Alexander Christoph. This is the thing, like, uh, like my my wicked little um, my naughty little habit is that yeah. I have just like little phrases that I want to embed in the consciousness of people, and I just. In articles, because I have a platform now, I can, I can just... <laughs> you can do this. Anytime I write evil. about Alexander Kristoff, say, I, I write Alexander the Stavanger Stallion Kristoff, and then eventually... It will be on Wikipedia. It'll be on Wikipedia, it'll be in TV coverage, mm. people will just be like, oh, the Stavanger yeah, Stallion's guy. off the front. Anyway, so they they seem to love welcoming TV crews into their house to show them where the magic happens, and... <laughs> There was there was one segment that I watched, which I I think was just like a a promo segment for a, a Norwegian sushi like micro chain. I think it's just in Stavanger <laughs> called Sumo Sushi. And how it's big just is Stavanger? Two hundred thousand people, maybe. And how many sushi uh, establishments would they have of this one? No, sorry, Sabi Sabi Sushi, not Samurai Sushi. Samurai Sushi no, yeah, is because they were about to get in touch. Is the Japanese slash Chinese restaurant in the middle of town? Okay. But Sabi Sushi is the the chain. Anyway. Um, th- there was like a, a five-minute beautifully filmed segment where it's just Christoph, like chopping fish, <laughs> and then just like real slow-motion pans, just very gracefully filmed, and it's just him and his wife eating some sashimi. Is is he? How is he? Ch- is it a gentle chopper? Is it like a? Ch- is it like a? No, it was ball? quite loving. Was it? He That's was, how um, I choose to remember. Okay. <laughs> The, but that, um, speaking of them going to work on the media into the house, Oliver Narsen has that with fans and media, and they'll just knock on his door. That's and weird. he was like, it's kind of fine because, you know, it's nice, but I draw the line at them just being in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and when, he said, when he said that to me, he felt kind of, like, guilty about it, and I was like, that is absolutely fine to draw the line there. He was like, well, yeah, I do have, like, Oliver, young children in the house. I was like, well, even more so. Um, yeah. I think uh, as a non non-professional cyclist, non-famous person. Yeah. As a person, I would have a problem with people being in my garden. We're out. <laughs> this is the end. This is the end. Uh, maybe maybe a Cycling Tips podcast. <laughs> we thought the end was yesterday and then people liked it, so really there's no... That's true. That's true. You yeah. brought this upon yourselves. <laughs> yeah, people told us they like yesterday's podcast, so we're just, you know, 
I feel like we maybe added more than one to this podcast. But yeah. we can we can If you don't like it, also tell us, but maybe just in a in a in a nice way. <laughs> so like and unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <sighs> well tomorrow we're gonna have we'll be able to talk about There's gonna be like racing. real bike racing. There's happening real bike racing happening. The part part of the yeah, like I said earlier, part of the issue today was that while there was some great sort of breakaway bike racing, there was nothing there's nothing Meaty. that really tied into the broader yeah. narrative of the Tour de France today. Really, just a slight dip. They can't race like they have every day. No, they can't. It's impossible. And that's just that's just. It was still entertaining. We still enjoyed it. But, but tomorrow will be good. It's the reality. Tomorrow's going to so. be a, a big one. I think. I think everyone's waiting for Abduez. But tomorrow, I think, could potentially be. I mean, the the, the back to back. Yeah, it's is crazy. The hard. Like tomorrow is hard. And then the next day. Is and then the next hard. day is hard. Really, really hard. They go over the Glibier both days. They just the basically way, switch directions. Yeah. That's, that is super cruel. <laughs> when I saw them over, because like they're making them go one way and then the other way. And then back just on go themselves. straight back. Yeah. And I'm tr- I, I'm trying to remember which way is more difficult. I think it mostly depends on the wind. So. Well, we talked about this in the preview episode way back weeks ago uh but yeah the, the way that they go over the second day the Altoez day is basically is very wind depending because it's sort of all the way up this valley the day the way that they go over tomorrow like i said is telegraph uh and over from that side which is more switchbacks and kind of goes back and forth so the wind will be less relevant but i, th- I think tomorrow is actually the harder glubier if i remember correctly but it's super hard either way because it goes to 7,300 feet? What's that? That's uh, 22,000 meters, 20-something hundred meters, 2,200 meters. The highest goes point high. of this year's Tour de France. Yeah, it goes really high tomorrow and will be very hard, and we're going to have a lot to talk about. And my guess is that what we're going to be talking about is Tadej Pogacar taking a bunch of time on everybody except maybe Jonas Vingigo. You're trying to trip him up now with... I am. I'm trying yeah. to give him the bad juju. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling good about being a god tomorrow. Yeah? Yeah. I'm feeling pretty I'm, good I'm about him in general. I think it's actually going to be a tighter Tour de France than we thought. Mm. I'm feeling good about the men in glass as well, but that's completely unrelated. <laughs> I'm feeling bad about the men in glass. <laughs> <laughs> are we good cop, bad copping the men in glass? Guys, the only the last thing on my run sheet here is just that our social media editor, Mikey, realized that Tinder works in France. I don't oh, know yeah. if we have a whole lot to add to that other than the I, fact that... Mikey has found out that Tinder works in France. I think we should run it uh, as our usual My Sable segment, as ah. to as the Mikey on Tinder in France segment. <laughs> so he can, I think, I think we'll, the way we'll start off is he can give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Yeah. And that's that's all we'll include for now. But we'll slowly build it. Where are we at at in. the moment, Mikey? We're on yeah, a thumbs, thumbs down. down. Oh, we're on a thumbs down. But there's a there's a lot of racing left, and he's told me he's going to take it uh, day by day. <laughs> and the sensations may be good. <laughs> And he's sleeping with Ian and I in the same room tonight. <laughs> so, uh, Ian, Ian now, Ian, Ian's looking very calm and enjoying himself the whole podcast. Now he looks worried. <laughs> Which is understandable. <laughs> All right, everybody. But really quick before we wrap up, we do need to hear from Jose Bain today because tomorrow is a big old stage. For tomorrow, the Kingdom of Savoy. The Mighty Glibier and the Rublichon Cheese. Let's hear from Jose. We are racing in the Savoie region of France. The two departments with the name Savoie and Haute-Savoie still tell us the story of a very old kingdom that started here in the Alps about a thousand years ago and eventually became the rulers of nearly all of Italy. 
The founder of the House of Savoy was Humbert I, the white-handed. And white-handed would have meant that he was very generous and not necessarily the colour of his hands. He owned the lands in the Alps we still know as Savoie and the lands south of Lake Geneva. Gradually, his successors, many of them named Amadeus, expanded the lands. Amadeus VIII secured Piemonte in Italy, and from there on the family acquired more and more of Italy through marriages, strategic choices of alliances, and old-fashioned warfare. In 1861, the Savoys became the royal family of Italy, but in 1946, Italy voted to become a republic. The fact that King Vittore Emanuele worked with the dictator Benito Mussolini from 1922 to 43 didn't really help his popularity. The Alps are also synonymous to cheese and hearty foods in general, especially in the wintertime. Reblochon is one of my favourite cheeses. And I know I told this story last year as well, but it's a good story and I will share it again. Reblochon derives from the word reblocher, which, when literally translated, means to pinch a cow's udder again. This refers to the practice of holding back some of the milk from the first milking of the day. During the 14th century, the landowners would tax the mountain farmers according to the amount of milk their herds had produced. The farmers would therefore not fully milk the cows until after the landowner had measured the yield. And the milk that remains is much richer and was traditionally used by the dairymaids to make their own cheese. In the 16th century, the cheese also became known as fromage de dévotion, devotional cheese, because it was offered to the Carthusian monks of the nearby Thorn Valley, by the farmers in returns for having their homesteads blessed by the monks. The Reblochon cheese is made with raw, raw cow's milk, which made export to certain countries like the USA impossible until about 2004. Reblochon is one of the key ingredients of winter sports favorite dish tartiflette. It's potatoes, cheese, onion, garlic, bacon, and double cream. There are about one trillion calories in it, and you can sustain yourself at least a week on one portion. But I would strongly advise the riders to not eat this before today's stage, which includes the amazing Lasset de Montvernier and the Col du Galibier. At 2,642 meters, it is the fifth highest road pass in the French Alps, after the Col de Liseran, which at 2,770 meters is the highest. Also the Col Agnel, Col de la Bonnette and the Col de Restevant are higher than the Calibier. But the Calibier is the highest point of this year's Tour de France. The Col de Galibier was probably used for a long time in prehistoric times as a crossing point between two large alpine valleys and later for the passage of armies and travellers. A carriage road was opened in 1879 and a tunnel in 1891. The first visit of the Tour de France took place on July the 10th, 1911. There were only three riders in the peloton who did not walk up the climb, according to author Les Woodland in his 2003 book, The Yellow Jersey. Since then, the Col du Galibier has been the starting point for the most prestigious stages of the Tour de France and has seen the greatest names leave their mark. Riders who arrived at the top in first place include Fausto Coppi, Eddie Merckx, Federico Bahamontes, Joop Soetermelk, Luis Ocaña, Marco Pantani, Andy Schleck, Primoz Roglic, and the last one in 2019, Nairo Quintana. On the top is a monument dedicated to Tour de France founder Henri de Grange. 
Every year, the rider who arrives at the highest point of the race in first place wins the Souvenir Henri Desgranges, which is a premium of 5,000 euros. And last year, this was Nairo Quintana on the Porte d'Anvilira in Andorra. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed that. We hope you enjoyed that. We enjoyed making it, clearly. Uh, yeah, had some good pizza, had an Aperol spritz, had uh, had some great views here in Mejev, mm. up here in the sort of ski resort area. And we will be back tomorrow from Serre Chevalier, Col du Glanon. So, yeah, it's going to be a big one. Make sure you tune in. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>